Today we are continuing our series in Second Peter, who is writing from Rome. You got it. Second Peter chapter three, verses eight through ten. So welcome this morning. The title of the message is What is God Waiting For? What is God Waiting For? From Second Peter chapter three, verses eight through ten. Have you ever said this? Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. Maybe you haven't said it, but you've thought it. Have you not? Waiting is difficult, isn't it? Or is it? I've been thinking about that topic this week. And I think I'm convinced of this, that it's not the waiting per se that is actually so difficult. For example, it is the end of September. In two months from now, the holiday season begins. And Black Friday will be here. Now, I don't quite get it, but you know as well as I, there'll be people lining up on Thanksgiving afternoon and evening. Some of them will be in line all night to get those Black Friday sales, especially in electronics. And I don't think anyone's forcing them to be there. They're actually doing it willingly, camping out overnight on a street corner to get that best deal. There are individuals who spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars to stand in excruciating lines with their family, oftentimes in the searing heat of summer. It is called Disney World. (laughs) And millions of tourists do it and must feel that it is worth it. And there's others of us who just think those individuals are a little crazy. So what's the difference? Why are some so willing to wait and others not? Or if they do wait, they're going to grumble and complain the entire time. Well, may I suggest, I believe it's a matter of perspective. If you know what you're waiting for and you deem the outcome worth it, You will wait. You see, this morning, God wants us to give us, he wants to give us perspective. He wants to give us his perspective. His perspective on waiting as it relates to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. Why? So that we would know what God is waiting for and why. And so ultimately, catch this, that our waiting would not just be a matter of patient endurance alone, but it would be waiting with joy. It would be a waiting that would lead to worship. So that's where we're headed this morning in this text. For sooner or later, we're all going to be tempted to ask this question of Christ's return. God, what in the world are you waiting for? Even if you haven't asked that question, I can almost assure you that you have people you know, friends, who have or who will ask this question. If your God is so powerful, if your God is so good, why doesn't he put an end to all this violence, all this terrorism, all this hatred, 
all this injustice and all the craziness we see in our world? Church, that's a good question. And I believe that's a fair question. And it's a question that's going to be answered this morning in our text. But I want to be real here. When we ask that question, oftentimes it's not so much a question in our hearts as it is an accusation. God, what we mean to say, why are you so slow? Why are you so slow in fulfilling your promises? In church, we have an answer this morning, and it's found here in 2 Peter chapter 3, and it's this, and it's the main theme for this morning. The Lord is not slow, just patient. The Lord is not slow, church, just patient. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning. So to do so, let us now read from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Let me turn there, excuse me. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let us pray. Lord, we're asking this morning that you would open our eyes to see as you see. That we would see you as you are. And Lord, as you do that this morning, our trust and hope is that you would lead us to worship, to worship you and to love you more as we see your patience and your mercy on full display in our lives and around us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, point number one, church, the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises. Verses eight and nine a. Peter starts off this new section in verse eight Addressing who? You see it in verse 8? His beloved. His Christian readers. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. In other words, Peter is saying, God's time is not our time. A thousand years or two thousand years for that matter is nothing to God. Just a wisp of time. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about time or our daily lives. Remember, a day for him is also like a thousand years. God knows, God sees, and he is involved in every millisecond of your life. But as one who exists outside the bounds of time, God has a radically different view of time than we do. I can't help if to wonder if Peter did not feel the tension or the angst 
when it comes, when it comes to the fact when we finally realize that our view of time is often so different than God's and the expectations that come with it. You see, Peter is writing this letter about 35 years after Pentecost, the exhilarating time of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured down upon his church, right? Rushing winds, tongues like a fire, individuals speaking in tongues, unknown languages, each understanding one another. It was a time where God birthed his church and he is filling his church all according to his prophetic promises. In fact, on that day, we see Peter standing up, giving explanation to what is happening around them. And he quotes the prophet Joel. And he essentially, he says, the last days have arrived. The final days have arrived. The beginning of the end is here. In other words, Peter is saying Christ's return is imminent. Yet here we are, Peter writing his letter, now 35 years later or so. What were you doing 35 years ago? I'm looking at some of you. You weren't even born yet. 1981. I was in middle school. That was a lifetime ago for me. And now Peter is writing. 35 years later, persecution is hitting hard and death is knocking at his door, and yet no coming Jesus in sight. No doubt Peter and those he was writing to felt that dissonance that we all live with as Christians, right? That gap between what will be one day, what has been promised, Christ's return, our deliverance, the new heavens and the new earth. We'll get to that next week. All that is ours in Christ. That's what's been promised. But yet we're not there yet, are we? We live in the already, but not yet, right? And so we, our current experience, our present experience, experience is often a harsher reality. Thus, Peter says in verse 8, But not, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is of a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. In other words, Peter reminds his reader, and I got to believe he's reminding himself as well, that God's perspective has never, ever been our perspective on time. And to do that in verse 8, you know what he's doing? He's quoting. He's going back to the Old Testament, all the way back to Psalm 90. He's quoting Moses. Psalm 90, verse 4, up on the screen. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. That is why Peter, that is why Paul, that is why we can say today that we live in the last times. 2,000 years now and counting before Christ's return. We are living in the last days. But come on, isn't that like long enough? 2,000 years, Lord? The truth is, especially for us today, in our culture, I would say especially in American culture, that we have a, you could say, distaste for slowness or perceived slowness. You could say there is a cultural disdain for slowness as defined by our own expectations. We just don't like to wait. We don't like to wait longer than we think we have to wait. 
And so we honk our horns one millisecond after the light turns green. It happened to me this morning. Go to church on a Sunday morning. It's like two cars on the road. I mean, I would at least two milliseconds, okay? But you kind of got it, right? I mean, people are texting at the light. They don't even look up these days, right? We are an impatient people. And we've mastered that art here, I think, in Miami and South Florida. But it goes deeper than that, church. We can perceive slowness as weakness or ineptitude. Most of you watched the Olympics, right, in Rio this summer? I may have missed it, but I don't believe any Olympic medal was given to the slowest runner or swimmer. Okay? It's not going to happen, right? Because we celebrate, we decorate the Usain Bolts of this world. Right? The Michael Phelps of this world. We also perceive slowness as just a poor way of doing things in a fast-paced world, right? Slowness is rather a bankrupt business model. We may even say it's a breach of contract if you're the consumer. We live in a day of venture capitalists, of stockholders, right? Who want a quick return on their money. They want to show our profits, right? A demonstration that they can quickly deliver on their promise. We are the generation of Amazon Prime, right? Hey, it's not just two-day deliveries. I understand you can get like two-hour delivery now in some cases in Amazon Pantry, right? It's like, it's like, I don't care. I want it now by delivery person or drone. Doesn't matter. Get it to me now. That's the life in which we live. We don't like to wait on a promised delivery. And frankly, we shouldn't have to wait, should we? That is our mentality. But even worse and more dangerous is this thought. We can perceive slowness to mean not at all. It ain't going to happen, okay? We can. We can go there all too quickly according to our expectations. It's not going to happen. We've been misled. We've been duped. We've been deceived. And a skepticism A cynicism can creep into our lives, can it? We can begin to doubt, to doubt God's promises, even his character, when our expectations of time aren't met. Look at what Peter says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Listen to this. As some count slowness, I believe Peter is talking about the false teachers, the scoffers, those who counted the slowness, in quotations, the slowness of Christ's return to mean that he is not coming back. No return, no judgment. And these bullies, these manipulators that we talked about here in Second Peter, were using such perceived slowness to question God's integrity, ability, and their understanding of Scripture. Their intent to play and to pray upon people's doubt. Oh, church, the Lord will fulfill his promises. He will return. And that, leaves, that leads us to point two, and I'm going to switch this out right now. Thank you. Point number two, the Lord is patient in fulfilling 
his plan. Verses 9b and 10. Oh, church, he has a plan. And here it is, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See the you there? Patient toward you. That you being referred to are the Christian recipients Peter has been addressing throughout the letter. It's a beloved of verse 8. And that you extends to you, O oh Christian, to you and to you as well. Do you see it? The Lord is and has been so patient with you. How many times did you hear the gospel before you responded in saving faith? How many times did you come here and hear the word preached and went home unmoved, unrepentant? You said, yeah, tomorrow I'll repent. Tomorrow I'll change. Tomorrow I'll make that move. You knew what to do. You just didn't do it. The fact is, church, that true repentance most often takes time. It takes time. Why? Because entering a relationship with Christ takes time. To come to an end of ourselves, to cling to Jesus as our only hope of forgiveness and change. It takes time to truly understand the magnitude of our sin against a holy God to see the depths of God's grace. It takes time to measure his love for us by the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we're not saved in an instant, but so often it takes time to get to that instant, doesn't it? Of salvation. For most of us, it took time to come to a true and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Don't miss the point. God's slowness to judge his long suffering and his patience is mercy toward you, toward you and towards me. All those who are called by God, it's his mercy. It's his covenant mercy. It's who God is, which is so wonderfully expressed in this refrain that we see echoed down through scripture. Let me read from Exodus 34 verse six. Oh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Notice those words there, slow to anger. Church, what we count as slowness, God counts as slow to anger. What we count as slowness He's not going to fulfill his promise, i.e. unfaithfulness. God counts as faithfulness. And you know what? This patient, steadfast love and mercy extends to all those God has chosen, but have not yet heard his name, the name of Christ, or have had the gospel preached to them. The prophet Jonah, as in Jonah and the whale, understood this point quite well. I want you to listen to Jonah's explanation here. Going back to the Old Testament. This is Jonah explaining why, sadly, when God told him to go to Nineveh, to go east, 
He beelined west to the coast, to Tarshish. Jonah, in a moment of utter pity and frankness, is explaining why he wanted to evade the mission, to go preach impending judgment to Israel's enemies, the Ninevites. And listen to Jonah chapter 2. We'll start up with verse, in verse 2 and verse 3. This is what he says. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do you catch that? Jonah is saying, in other words, I didn't go and preach initially to the Ninevites because I knew, God, that you are a patient and merciful God. And I didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. The patience which Jonah despised was the very same patience that God had shown Jonah in his disobedience and waywardness. Friends, let us not despise the patience of the Lord. Romans 2 verse 4 asks this question. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Have you ever wondered why or even noticed There are so many exhortations in the scripture regarding patience. This last year, just this theme of patience has just been popping up. You know, when I'm reading scripture, kind of like when you're looking at a new car and all of a sudden everyone's driving that new car. Or for me, like when you start growing a little facial hair and everyone now has a beard. I mean, it's the same dynamic. Once you see it, you see it everywhere. That's that's been happening to me. I want to put up just a few select scriptures here in pretty rapid pace just to show you this priority of patience, as we see particularly in the New Testament epistles. All right? And I want to put it up in just a second. I want to ask this question before we do. How can we follow a patient God who is slow to anger if we are impatient and quick to anger? It is God who's patient with us. It is God who, by his grace, in giving us his spirit, by which we can now walk in the patience which he supplies. And with that in mind, let's look at the first verse up there. Galatians 5.22. Many of you know it well, the fruit of the spirit. But this is what God, through his spirit, is cultivating, cultivating in you, O Christian. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Most of us got that first three, that triad, right? But it moves on. Patience. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul had just spent three chapters in the book of Ephesians talking about the gospel and the blessings that we have in Christ. And now he says in Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Colossians 1, verse 11. read it earlier this morning in our Service prayer time. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. I love this prayer. He says this, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? Check it out. 
for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul's praying for power. Not just any power. He's praying for Christ's resurrecting power. Why? So the Colossians would go conquer armies and do signs and wonders? That's cool, but no. I'm praying for Christ's resurrecting power. Why? So you would have patience. Patience. Yeah, you got it. Patient endurance. Ah, notice the phrase, though, with joy. And lastly, Colossians 3.12. We have been fitted with a wardrobe in Christ. And thus we're told in Colossians 3. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones. This is the wardrobe that God has provided in Christ for us. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, there it is, and patience. Do you understand the good news of Jesus is God's patient plan of salvation? The gospel is the good news of Jesus, of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. No, yeah, his return. By the way, Christ has not returned yet. So it is a patient plan, is it not? It is a patient salvation. Thus, for us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is to exercise that same patience. Oh, yes, as we trust and obey, as we actively share our faith. That's where we're going next week. But today, we want to establish from Scripture the priority and virtue of patience as a gift from God and as a reflection of who he is and how he treats us, O saint. It's by his grace and it's by his spirit, knowing that God will indeed fulfill his plan for all creation and his judgment will not be delayed forever. And that leads to our final verse, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Christ's coming may be counted as slow or slowness by some. But when it finally comes... It will come with a thief-like, surprising swiftness and finality. And when Jesus comes, back to verse 10, it says the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. However, the earth and its works in contradistinction to the heavens will not be burned up, at least totally, or annihilated, but they will be exposed. You see that? It's as if God is saying that he is going to tear the veil between heaven and earth. He's going to peel back all that stands between earth and the eyes of God. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 34, verse 4, all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. Why will the sky be rolled up? To expose all to God's scrutinizing assessment and judgment. On that day, none will be able to hide. All who thought they were getting away with it 
with their evil deeds or just thought God didn't see them will be exposed and judged. Like the captured Saddam Hussein in Iraq, for those who remember that scene, he was found hiding, tucked away in a spider hole, in a foxhole, when the troops came to capture him. Like the captured President Saddam Hussein, everyone's covering by which they're hiding will be removed. And everyone who deny Christ will be found. Listen to these sobering words from Revelation 6. We'll put it on the screen for you, verses 15 and 16. These words speak of that terrible day. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Friends, God is a patient God. But his patience is not inexhaustible. Unbeliever, don't wait until it's too late. The fact that Christ has not yet returned is his kindness and his mercy toward you. It's a call. It's a call to repent and to embrace your coming Savior or else meet him on that terrible day as your worst enemy. Back to the questions, which I surfaced at the beginning. What in the world is God waiting for? If God is so powerful, if he is so good, why doesn't he put an end to all the violence, the terrorism, the injustice of our world? What could he possibly be waiting for? He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for each of his children to come on home. It's been interesting having my second oldest daughter now drive and to drive at night and to drive our beater minivan. I found myself a little hesitant at night to turn off the lights and go to bed before he, she has safely arrived home. Friends, God will not turn out the lights until each of his children are home. He will not. He's waiting for that unsaved one, that unsaved loved one that you've been praying for, your parents, your spouse, your child or children or that neighbor. For those in Cuba, for those in Turkey, for those in Nicaragua, from those whom we have visited, that we have played soccer with, that we have done English clubs with, 
those whom we have visited in their homes. He is waiting. Those he has called to himself from every block, from every family, from every nation, and from every tribe. Church, may that truth, may the stunning gospel mercy and display of patience cause each and every one of us this morning to worship him, to say, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is our God. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. For our God is patient. Our God is merciful. And our God is always on time. And all of his children will come home before the lights are turned off. With that, let us pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy with me. Thank you for each hard-headed person here. Oh, Lord, we are slow. You aren't the one that's slow. We're slow. And yet you've demonstrated your mercy time and time again. Your loving kindness, your steadfast love. Oh, Lord, that lead us to worship this morning with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. And Lord, even as we sing now, we lift up those who have not yet received you, who yet not yet placed their saving faith in you. Oh, Lord, would you have mercy as you've had mercy on us? So, Lord, we worship you now in spirit and in truth, inhabit our worship and praise, we pray, O merciful God. Amen.